0: In an urban society, everything connects. Each person's needs are fed by the skills of many others. Our lives are woven together in a fabric. But the connections that make society strong also make it vulnerable. Threads. This week, we're trying something new. We're going to analyse the film in a mad, demented, obsessive manner taking it four minutes at a time. There are lots of podcasts out there which do this for other films, analysing a minute per episode. But I'm doing four minutes per episode to mark the nuclear four-minute warning. But first... Can it be that there are people out there listening to this podcast who haven't seen threads or who don't know of threads? Unbelievable, but if there are let me tell these listeners a short bit about the film. It was broadcast by the BBC in September of 1984 and is a highly realistic drama about the effects of a nuclear war on the northern industrial city of Sheffield. And I saw it on its first broadcast, when I was just three years old. And that's why you're listening to me now. That's what shaped me and determined my career, my nuclear obsession. Threads seized me like a ferocious, iron-jawed bulldog, and it shook me and it savaged me, and I have never been the same since. I can say I recommend it to you. Threads begins like an ordinary drama, a kitchen sink drama, as we'd call it. We have a young couple, middle-class Ruth and working-class Jimmy, who are out on the moors in Jimmy's car, and in the style of kitchen sink dramas, posh Ruth gets pregnant, and working-class Jimmy has to do the honourable thing and marry her. The families aren't too happy, but they all seem to decide to make the best of it. Both families meet for tea, Jimmy and Ruth get a flat... And Ruth's mum starts knitting some cute little cardigans. But don't be fooled, because this is, of course, not an ordinary drama about the stress of young love and marrying when the parents don't approve. And it's not a drama about trying to build a life in Maggie Thatcher's harsh post-industrial Northern England. It sets itself up that way, yes, but then tears it all away from you, because yes... A bloody nuclear war breaks out, and suddenly, most of the characters you were following and beginning to know simply vanish from the screen. Those pink little baby cardigans being knitted, and the new flat they were scraping the wallpaper from, and the family dinners, and the paper rounds, and the homework, all that texture of humdrum life is ripped away, and we're plunged into a nightmare wasteland. And the film is absolutely merciless in depicting life after nuclear war. Merciless. I'm talking of scenes where we see a burned woman huddled on the pavement pressing her cold, dead baby to her breast. I'm talking of seeing a blackened hand reaching out from a pile of rubble. I'm talking of a pregnant Ruth having to sell her body in exchange for a dead rat from a supermarket carrier bag. I'm talking of a new generation of children born and raised after the nuclear war in this dead, colourless, blasted world who have even lost the use of language. The new generation can only grunt and stamp and stare. We've become utterly brutalised and Threads leaves you with the awful and depressing knowledge that we'll never just never claw our way back to what we once were. Never again will there be soft beds and steak pies and libraries and lullabies. In an urban society, everything connects. Each person's needs are fed by the skills of many others. Our lives are woven together in a fabric But the connections that make society strong also make it vulnerable. This is the short narration which opens the film and, of course, gives the film its title. A modern urban society can only function because of countless connections. Everyone depends on everyone else. No one can stand alone in a modern society. We are all joined together, whether we like it or not, we are all made interdependent by these threads. Consider something as basic as a loaf of bread. If you lived back in the olden days in our rural community, you would have baked your own bread. But not so in a modern urban society, where a whole network is responsible for getting bread to your table. If you lift a loaf from the supermarket shelf, So many other people and their jobs and their companies and their labours and their skills put it there. It's no longer just you rolling up your sleeves in the kitchen. You depend on other people for that bread. Those who've harvested the crops and turned it into flour. Those who've milked the cows. Those who've baked the dough. Those who've wrapped it and processed it. Those who've loaded it onto vans and taken it to your local shop. The staff there who unload it and stack the shelves and then the staff who run it through the till for you and take your money. You might even factor in the bus driver who takes you to the shop or the delivery guy who brings it to your home. There's a whole network there made up of lots of tiny threads and all these threads allow the modern urban society to function. We're all fine. We're all fine and smooth and privileged and life is easy and convenient until there is some catastrophic event And these threads snap. And then we see how utterly small and weak and vulnerable we are. Likewise with, say, breaking your leg. It's easy these days to mend a broken leg, but consider the threads at work, the vast web of connections which must all be stitched together to make sure that you can phone an ambulance, be zoomed into hospital along... Smooth tarmac roads, where the traffic is kept in order by lights and road signs. Arrival at hospital and you'll be received by skilled nurses and doctors who've spent years at their medical and nursing schools. Consider all the staff who make your bed and clean the hospital and produce your food. The manufacture of the drugs you'll need and the plaster which hold your leg together. So many threads all joining up to form the tapestry of your hospital stay. So in our modern society, we're all doing fine until the threads snap. The opening 40 seconds or so of threads is taken up with this short narration and we see a spider weaving a web. That web, of course, serves its purpose for the spider. It works perfectly well, yet it can be broken just by passing your hand through it or swatting at it with a newspaper. The threads work and they work nicely until something intrudes. And the camera pans over Sheffield, showing us the city's own threads at work. Everything is functioning nicely. We see shops and houses and flats and buses and lorries, chimneys and power cables. All the threads of Sheffield, all nicely joined, all humming together in nice, busy, contented productivity. And yes, as our city grows and as our society becomes ever more advanced, so we need to develop more threads, make more connections, rely on more people, more skills, more links in the chain. And so the more advanced we become, the more vulnerable we are. Every time a new thread is stitched, we become more separated from basic survival. We rely on someone else to perform a service for us, someone else to make the food repair us when we're injured, the more links we add to the chain, the more vulnerable we become. At least a medieval peasant scratching around in the dirt didn't really have much to lose. He had very few threads connecting him to the world around him, and so a nuclear war, ah well, much the same today as it was yesterday for him, but not for us in our modern urban society. When the camera is panning over Sheffield, what can we notice? We see a milk float trundling down a street, and milk and milk floats pop up again in the film, the milk float being used, I suppose, as a symbol of quiet, plodding, reassuring normality. What is more predictable and regular and comforting than the quiet tinkling of a milk float down a suburban street as the dawn breaks? And when you lift your chilli milk bottles from the doorstep and take them into the kitchen, you're, yes, probably, <laughs> going to be making a nice, sensible cup of tea. Milk and normality and a sense that all's well. And of course, milk as well symbolises wholesomeness, especially in the 80s when Threads was made. There were adverts on British TV to promote milk and the drinking of milk, that's the dog snoring, if anyone heard that. like Another 80s uh, thing about milk was being given free milk at school. I started school in 1984. 1985, sorry. 1985. And I remember being given a carton of milk every day at school, which was always warm, of course, because we didn't have fridges in the school. Huge, big um, crates of this milk would just be unloaded in the school gym hall and then dished out to each classroom, and you'd have to drink your lukewarm milk. Of course, the idea was dishing out milk to all the little kids in Britain because it's healthy, it's filled with calcium, gives you healthy bones and skin and teeth and so on. And famously, those who uh, went to school in the 80s will remember that free milk for schools was stopped under Margaret Thatcher, giving her the nickname Maggie Thatcher Milk Snatcher. But until the free milk was given away, yes, you would have to be given your little carton of milk, which I remember having uh, traffic lights on the back. It must have been part of some public information campaign to teach us the Green Cross Code, how to cross the road safely. So you would pierce your tiny little carton with your straw. If you were bored, you could read the traffic light safety information on the back. And you had to drain your carton of this lukewarm milk because otherwise it would be wasteful, It would be um, you weren't getting the benefit of it. So what my school did, tell me if yours was the same, because I always remember this vividly as being very strange, one child each day would have to stand at the front of the classroom beside the bin, and when other kids came up to the bin to drop their empty cartons in, this appointed pupil would shake each carton, they were called the shaker, and they would shake the carton to make sure it was empty. If the shaker could hear some milk sloshing about in the carton, they would sternly hand it back and you had to go back to your seat and drain the last bubbly dregs of that lukewarm milk. So there, milk, for 80s kids at least, symbolising sensible, wholesome behaviour. Something benevolent and good and healthy. And here we have, at the beginning of Threads, our milk being delivered. And as I say later in the film, we see our milk being scorched, melted, taken away forever by big bad nuclear war. Either Maggie Thatcher or nuclear war. Something's going to get your milk if you're a kid in the 80s. We also see, unless I'm mistaken, the image isn't very clear, a sun-blessed van. Going about the streets doing its deliveries, uh, the red and yellow, of, or the red and cream, I think it is, of Sunblessed. So there we have, of course, the basics of, of human um, food, I suppose, wholesome food, milk and bread. We see them being delivered around the streets of Sheffield, and again, it's comforting, it's sensible, it's wholesome eagle-eyed viewers will also spot an Ever-Ready van. I had to pause on that and I looked as close as I could and there is, I'm quite certain, a van with the Ever-Ready logo on it. Of course, Ever-Ready is a brand of battery. So, was that a thing in the 80s? Did local shops have Ever-Ready vans delivering batteries to them? Milk, bread, yes, certainly, but not batteries. But maybe in the 80s, in the days before big giant supermarkets, etc, your local ironmonger or DIY shop might have needed a nice hefty delivery of ever-ready batteries. And we see a local Sheffield bus in its cream and burgundy livery. Am I correct in that? Is it burgundy or is it a darker brown? Hard to tell. But we see a local bus, and of course the whole idea of transport is crucial in a nuclear war as one of the things you'll be most desperate to do is flee, either to a perceived place of safety in advance of the war, or fleeing from destruction, fire and fallout afterwards. But you probably can't flee for many, many reasons. Nuclear war is very keen that you not be able to run away. As we've discussed in previous episodes, the government in Britain... Would designate a lot of our main roads and motorways as essential service routes, meaning they'd be closed to the public and reserved for military and government traffic only. If you were still intent, however, on driving out of the city before the bomb dropped, you could probably try your luck on Britain's little fiddly side roads. But so will everyone else, so good luck with that. The public in trying to flee We'll probably do the government's job for them, i.e there's no need for them to block these secondary roads, as we'll do it ourselves via panic, traffic jams, and gridlock. But now let's plunge into the story. We might as well as nuclear war is very swiftly going to snatch you away. Jimmy and Ruth are... well what's the polite word <laughs> courting? up on the moors in Jimmy's car, which my car-geek husband tells me is a Ford Cortina Mark II, g Reg, which means it was made in probably 67 or 68. So Jimmy is impressing his bird with a 17-year-old car. Better than nothing, I suppose. But Ruth isn't fussed, she's delighted, because they're up on the moors in the fresh air, away from the smoky, industrial air of Sheffield, A city, of course, once famous for its steelworks. But the steel industry is in decline. As we see later, Jimmy's dad has been made redundant. And instead of spending his days in a sweaty, masculine industry, he wears an apron and fussies around the dinner table, dishing out the peas. Of course, nothing wrong with that, but perhaps in 1980s Britain, that would be seen as a tad emasculating. So Sheffield's proud industry is on the decline, although it's about to suffer a blow far worse than anything Thatcher and de could have inflicted. But our young couple aren't bothered by such realities. Although Ruth is startled out of her romantic daydreams when a jet goes screaming overhead. This is, again thanks to David, who loves aeroplanes as much as he loves his cars, a phantom which, from the mid-70s to the end of the Cold War, acted as an interceptor in the RAF. This is, of course, a quite crude and harsh way of telling us that, yes, you can enjoy the peaceful, airy moorland, if you like, but elsewhere the world keeps on turning, the storm clouds of war are gathering, and so the RAF are exercising their interceptors, obviously anticipating an enemy attack. These planes would probably have come from the nearby air base of RAF Finningley, which has since been turned into Doncaster Sheffield Airport, but which previously had the daft name of Robin Hood Airport. It's worth pointing out that Finningley, during the Cold War, was home to some Vulcan bombers. The Vulcans, of course, being the most famous of Britain's nuclear bombers. After a bit of mucking about and the gallant presentation to Ruth of a sprig of heather from Jimmy, we cut to a pub. We're back down in Sheffield in the Nottingham House pub, and the romantic mood has evaporated because Ruth is now delivering some unwelcome news to Jimmy. Yep, she's pregnant. But there's even worse news going on in the background. In the pub, the TV is on behind the bar, the newsreader is delivering ominous reports of growing tensions between America and the Soviet Union, but no one's listening. There's cold beer and fruit machines and a good time to be had, and so everyone just chatters away, and the TV plays on, ignored, behind the bar. This isn't the first time that the news has been ignored in threads. The film is only, at this point, three and a half minutes old. And already there have been two occasions where the public have ignored frightening news in the background. In the Nottingham House pub here, with the TV being ignored. And also up on the moor, as Jimmy is trying to inch his hand up Ruth's thigh, the news comes on in the car radio, but Jimmy immediately switches it off so we can get the football scores. Ruth's thigh, or the growing threat of nuclear war, Both of these things immediately pushed aside because the football scores are being read out. Although the film is, as I say, only three and a half minutes old at this point, already there are two nagging moments where you want to urge the characters, pay attention, listen, listen! But they don't, they turn away, they carry on with the trivial minutiae and arguments and drinking of ordinary life. Why won't they listen? Why won't they do something? Why won't they run? But then, of course, you realise that there's no bloody point anyway, even if they did want to run. As we've long discussed on this podcast, there's no point. You can't outrun a nuclear war. So already, at three and a half minutes, this film is making us feel anxious and edgy and helpless and frustrated as we watch as Ruth and Jimmy bicker and moan and drink their beer and don't realise what's happening. And then as our four minutes draw to a close, Ruth confronts Jimmy with the situation. You know, what if she is pregnant? It's not the end of the world. I hope you've enjoyed our scrutiny of the first four minutes of Threads. I'm going to eventually work my way through the whole film. Every now and then, I'll do the next four minutes and the next until we've given ourselves some kind of breakdown. Let me remind you that I've set up a YouTube channel, so if you want to see some additional material, some videos about nuclear war, how we prepared for nuclear war, please do check out my YouTube channel, which is also called The Atomic Hobo. And remember, you can get me on Facebook at Nuclear Britain or on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell. And before I go this week, let me thank my patrons for donating to this podcast. Also donating, of course, to the cost of research, the cost of purchasing archives, and for setting up my YouTube channel. Big thanks to everyone. If you want to chip in, if you enjoy my work, please take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me say a special thank you to the following. Messi Ventura, Heather Parker, Peter Mars, Craig Bushman, John Haynes, Tom Stickland, Yannick, Sam Marco, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damien Ryan, Peter Lee. Of course, I have far more patrons than this, but I can't any longer fit everyone in. It's taking too long because thank you, I now have 93 people in total. So I'm going to divide everyone up and read everyone out in batches. I hope that's okay, it was taking far too long and someone pointed out that my Patreon list is soon going to be longer than the podcast and that was quite accurate. So thank you everyone for contributing and for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast or the YouTube channel please do subscribe and please do tell your friends. Let's get everyone obsessed with nuclear war. Why should we be the only ones who are suffering and are terrified? (laughs) But thanks everyone and I'll be back next week with another podcast.